welcome back to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Eric Schwartzel. Uh, Eric is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, uh, in addition to being the author of the new book, uh, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Big uh, topic here on the show frequently. We talk about China quite a bit, so I'm, I was very excited to read this book. Eric, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I want to start in 1997 with the release of the making of and the release of Martin Scorsese's uh, historical epic about Tibet Kundun. Fascinating story here about how that movie A got made and then B got kind of strangled in the crib by Disney and why. Uh, so let's let's start there. What happened with uh, Kundun and how does that kind of set the stage for what happens with Hollywood and China over the next 25 years? Yeah, it's a great place to start because when I was researching that point in history, it was one of those moments where I thought to myself, really, man, like everything repeats itself eventually. It really feels like a story that we could have we could have seen 10 or 20 years later as well. Kundin was uh, a movie that Martin Scorsese wanted to make about a young Dalai Lama that had been written by Melissa Matheson, who wrote E.T., and who had traveled to Tibet with her then-husband, Harrison Ford, and gotten to know uh, some figures there and wanted to tell this story on the screen. Scorsese at the time had just done uh, Casino and was working with uh, Universal. And uh, Casino did not come in as the bosses wanted it to. It was over long and they wanted him to cut 45 minutes. They had this big fight. And he left Universal and took Kundin to Disney. So Disney at the time was doing well. It was sort of that post-animation renaissance, but a big priority of the company was expanding overseas. And one of the markets they had identified was China, which at the time, really, the math was very promising, even if the market itself was not very developed. In the mid-90s, you had a lot of trade deals being signed. Boeing had just recently gone into the country. And there was clearly, clearly an effort by the Chinese leaders to open their economy to the world. And movies would eventually follow. And a few years before Kundin was made, movies had started streaming into China, but really making so little money that no studio chief was paying attention to it. Well, there was an executive at Disney named Peter Murphy who had been leading the effort to expand into China, primarily with a TV station, with the Disney Channel, and with things like consumer products. There were already discussions at this point about opening a theme park at some point on the mainland. Um, still early, but but something that they all had their eye on and something that they knew if they were thinking 20 years out was going to be a big part of their company's growth. Well, so Peter Murphy, who worked in the C-suite here in Burbank one day, gets a phone call from the Chinese embassy saying, we understand that you have just started filming a movie about the young Dalai Lama, and we would like you to stop. And if you do not, all of the promise that you've identified in our country is jeopardized. So this movie that had really just been sort of something they had inherited and that for a company as big as Disney was an afterthought. I mean, it was a drama sure. about a young Dalai Lama being made by a subdivision of a subdivision became this radioactive element because it had crossed Chinese political tripwires and threatened Disney's entire future in the country. And it had not even come out. I think this was on maybe the first day or the first week of it even being filmed that this threat was made. And Disney had to quickly figure out how they solve that problem. 
Yeah. There's an interesting tidbit in your book. Uh, as you said, the, the project was originally at Universal, um, and Universal at the time was owned by Seagram's. And the, the head of Seagram's was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not getting every Seagram's product kicked out of China uh, to make this movie. Exactly. It was Edgar Bronfman. And, and he, just by virtue of the spirits business going into China a little earlier than, than entertainment did, had visibility into the concessions you would have to make if you wanted to maintain access to the Chinese market. Now, ironically, Kundin would be that example for much of Hollywood because eventually Disney was banned in the market for making the movie. They, the executives tried to bury its release. They, they knew that if they canceled the film, that Scorsese would cause a stink, that a lot of the creative community would say, you know, you're suppressing free expression. So they didn't want to do that, but they also didn't want it to be a major release that further angered China. So the solution was to release it on as few screens as possible and essentially, you know, pretend it never happened. And still, a year or two after it came out, Michael Eisner, the CEO of Disney at the time, had to go over to, di go over to China and really grovel, quite frankly, to get back into the country. And sure enough, eventually, the movie started going back in. And as we know today, they have a massive theme park in Shanghai. In the best of times, their movies gross hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. And it's characterized as one of the most important aspects of their business. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is that that domestic release strategy is really interesting uh, and, and the way they tried to kill it, because Hollywood at, at this time and a little earlier um, when the uh, there, there was a there was a bit of a kerfuffle over the release of uh, Judo, Judo yep. mm -hmm. I mean, uh, which which had gotten an Oscar nomination and China actually asked for that to be rescinded. Right. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and it really is. Um, it's really fascinating. It seems like the Communist Party, going back to Mao, has really policed its image in a number of ways. And one of the ways it has done so is it is very cautious about not just what its people see and experience, but what audiences around the world see and experience when it comes to a portrayal of China. And this film that you're describing, which was nominated for an Oscar, which in other times would be cause for celebration for a country like China. I mean, think of China in the early 90s getting an Oscar nomination. Um, it was not the kind of image they wanted to put forward on the world stage. And they try, as you said, they, they essentially requested that that Oscar nomination be rescinded. And at the time, Hollywood actually came to that director's defense and said, mm. you know, this is very troubling, this, this sort of practice of censorship. It would, that tenor though would change as China's box office market grew and grew. So even when Kundin was threatening Disney's theme park, the Chinese box office, I mean, a hit movie back then would make like $2 million. I mean, this was not something that if you're running a studio, you should be spending a lot right. of time thinking about. It wasn't until the early 2000s and then especially around 2009, 2010, when the box office really started to grow at a clip and domestic movie going started to flatline that we saw that tenor change and every studio realized we can't do anything to piss off China because frankly, it's the only growth market we've got. Yeah. We'll come back to that, too, because that seems to that that has changed as well uh, over the last few years here. But I'm fascinated by a a comparison that you make 
hesitantly, I think, in the book uh, for, for good reason, because it's hard. You don't want to throw this around willy nilly. But there is there is a comparison to be made between the way uh, Germany pre-World War II was, uh, you know, kind of keeping an eye on what Hollywood was making and what China is doing right now. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and And it was something that I was really struck by as I was reporting this book, I started to do some reading about. There's been some really fantastic scholarship done on Hollywood's concessions to the Nazis before the U.S. entered World War II. And it was striking just how similar the playbook was, because I think, you know, in Hollywood, when you talk to people about censorship in China, a, a ready response that a lot of executives will have is that they they change movies for all kinds of markets. And they they edit movies for airplanes. You know, this is just part of the, the, the course of doing business. But China is different in a number of respects. And the ways they are different mirror those of the Nazi party in 1930s Germany. One of which is, as I mentioned, not only worrying about what your people see, but worrying about what audiences around the world see when it comes to portrayals of, of your country. The other is punishing studios for movies that aren't even released in your country. So so no one making Kunden expected it to screen in China. What China did, though, is say, we're still going to punish you for making it however we can. So maybe it means we don't let your next movie in. And, and, and Germany had a very similar um, system actually signed into law that allowed them to cancel distribution agreements for studios that had crossed them. And then I think the final leg of that stool is this idea of really finding caution, really finding examples to be made of infractions that scare everyone. So in China, there's a saying that that translates roughly to kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. And it's this idea that if you can find an example, whether it's Kundin or John Cena or any number of, uh, of things you disagree with, and you can make a very public example out of them, you scare everyone into submission. And all the better if the infraction doesn't even seem that bad because it sort of lowers the bar for risk among everyone. And and Germany did this quite frequently, where if they got wind of a movie in pre-production that they disagreed with, whether it was about the sinking of the Lusitania, or if it was a veiled critique of, of Hitler's rise, they would make a loud example of, of their anger, and even very publicly threaten the actors who were said to be associated with that film to either cancel its production or make sure that every other studio in town knew, hey, if you if you explore similar themes, you're going to be hearing from us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Again, the the story about All Quiet on the Western Front, which I've, I've read about in some of some of these uh, other histories, uh, just it really felt like this is Kundun, you know, 1.0, I guess would be Kundun would be All Quiet on the Western Front 2.0. But yeah, exactly. Know. I mean, and, and, and yeah, All Quiet really kicks it off because when that movie premieres in Germany, uh, no less than Joseph Goebbels was using it as an example of of Hollywood kind of coming and besmirching the Nazi party's reputation. And eventually Universal, the studio behind that film, changed it and then re-released it with a more kind of sanctioned version. And Germany 
ensured that that new version was released in theaters around the world and even dispatched ambassadors or you know, employees of the local consulates to make sure that the sanctioned version was the one that they were showing. Yeah. I mean, I like, again, anybody who is paying any attention at all to what is happening with Hollywood and China can see parallels to that now, right? I mean, you know, people like to point to Red Dawn, but that was actually Hollywood kind of preemptively, uh, you know, changing, changing their film. But other movies, like you mentioned Mission Impossible 3, um, uh, World War Z, there, there, are so, there are so many examples of this this happening and essentially the film being changed uh, around the world to, to reflect Chinese priorities. Absolutely. And, and, and also executives will tell me that when they go to China, they are often asked by media, by officials, by moviegoers, will there be one version of this movie? Because um, and I think that's that's twofold. I think the officials, as you said, want to make sure that the the sanctioned version is the one that audiences everywhere are seeing. But I also think that they kind of rightfully are are skeptical or cynical of being pandered to and Hollywood just sort of inserting a scene or cutting something that they know will anger Chinese officials just for that market. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 something else. I want to talk a little bit um, about another angle of the business of Hollywood that doesn't really get discussed a ton, but I think is very important for people to understand, and you do a good job of tracking in this book, uh, is the the influx of Chinese money into the actual infrastructure of movie going in the United States and elsewhere. The uh, the, the deal uh, by Wanda to uh, to finance and fund AMC, what, I, I mean, a, a, how much money are we talking about here? But B, also, like, what did that actually... Uh, provide to theater owners here in the United States and theater and frankly moviegoers as well. Yeah, this was a deal that uh, Dalian Wanda Group, which is this giant real estate conglomerate in China that really kind of rode the middle class wave in China through its construction of shopping malls um, to become this massive company. At one point, its CEO, a, a guy still referred to around town as just Chairman Wong. He was the richest man in China at one point. And he, in 2012, purchased AMC, which at the time I think was the second largest movie theater circuit in the country, um, based in a suburb of Kansas City, you know, as American a company as they come. And he paid a little over $2 billion with with a significant amount of debt for this, this movie theater company that until then had really just been sort of uh, struggling in private equity ownership land. And uh, it was a massive infusion of capital that AMC in part, I found this fascinating, in part used to fund the refurbishings they were doing in so many auditoriums that now have recliners in them. So this big recliner movement in American movie theaters was partially financed by by the Chinese. And at the time, there was some concern, like, why are the Chinese coming here and buying something like a movie theater? And there was some pushback, I think, far less than there would be today for a, for a similar deal. Um, but there was a strategy there. Part of it was expanding overseas and having this giant Chinese real estate company expand a little bit. But there also was an element of technology transfer and the ability to see how this 100-year-old movie theater company operated, where it built its theaters, how they were constructed, how they booked movies. And that was and there were sort of like there was a sharing of knowledge between 
Wanda's movies in the U.S. and Wanda's movie theaters in China. Um, eventually, they took the company public and quite successfully took it public. And obviously, since then, the share price has just had a really bizarre run as a meme stock, <laughs> and like it's yeah. it's it's had a it's had a very odd second chapter. Um, but it was the first major. Chinese deal, one of the first major Chinese deals into the U.S. period, and certainly the first into Hollywood. And it kicked off quite a bit of these like mega financing deals, especially around like 2015, 2016, that moved beyond just the infrastructure, but more into the actual production and financing the actual producing of movies. Yeah. What I, I there there's a, there's an interesting component to to this part of the story uh insofar as uh it seemed like the Chinese were warier of the deals than Americans and American politicians and American businesses. Because I mean it it seems like a, at one point, you know, there there's a great line in your book that uh that a uh, about a um a Chinese company trying to buy a studio that was most famous for helping uh, Jared Leto win an Oscar uh, to, as playing a trans woman like that. Yeah. Wh- how is this? How does this appeal to China and China? And and eventually it just stops. Right. It, like the rug gets kind of pulled out under from underneath. Yeah, it was a really crazy. I was I was covering the industry at that moment and it really was crazy. It, it felt like every company had a Chinese entity kicking the tires on it. And every entity here in Hollywood was happy to try and cash the checks. And so the, the the deal you referenced, which is there was a um, there was a Chinese copper processing company that was trying to buy Voltage Pictures, which is a small production company that at the time was known for two movies, The Hurt Locker and Dallas Buyers Club, which, as you said, was the movie that Jared Leto won an Oscar for playing a trans woman. And this was ultimately like the straw that broke the camel's back because it was like there is no way that this is synergistic with copper processing right like i think that the company had tried to make the case that it was trying to have a diversify so that if commodity prices softened it was it was safer i don't know if buying a small hollywood production <laughs> company is the most you know stable uh avenue to go down if if that's the case but there were other there were other things happening behind the scenes though which is that the chinese officials saw through a lot of these deals and realized that a lot of it was about getting money out of china and into stronger currencies and they worried that that would weaken confidence in the chinese economy the and and cuz for a while a lot of these chinese financiers were getting away with these deals because they were able to say to the government we're doing your bidding you have made entertainment and soft power and the cultural industries a state priority. So we are doing our part by going to Hollywood, investing in these companies and learning how it's done. There's oftentimes behind a lot of these business trends in China, a rather cynical attempt to explain it as a government favor, right? Like that. And, you know, the government says we're into solar power. Suddenly everybody's investing everywhere in, in solar power. And so, um, but whenever you started to have like the copper processing plant trying to get over here and buy voltage, the go- the government essentially shut it down and said, we're going to scrutinize all outbound investment deals over a certain amount. And essentially that kills any chance that 
these financiers have of getting money out of the country. It's also like it's just bad business. Like why why risk it at that point? And the and the and the poor folks at Voltage, the the Dallas Buyers Club executives, you know, their timing couldn't have been worse because the deal was announced I think a couple weeks before the government said, "Uh oh, no, we're tapping the brakes on this." But the deal had not yet closed, and they were left empty-handed. Yeah, yeah, I, it's 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 crazy. And, and there are other there are other financial uh, issues at play here. But it's 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 also uh, so I I I'm, I'm kind of awkwardly leading into this. There there uh, in in China, several stars, uh, particularly the actress Fan Bingbing, who have fallen under scrutiny from the government for tax evasion. But it's it's hard to tell how much of this actually has to do with tax evasion versus trying to control, uh, you know, the, the image of the country or the, the actress or actor themselves, right? Yeah, and I think that as China's film industry has grown over the past decade, it has developed like every local film market. It has movie stars. And and one question that I had when I started writing this book was, how do movie stars fit into a communist regime, right? There's just not, there's just obvious tension there. And and there had there was a moment where things started to crack. And it was with Fan Bingbing, who at the time was, I mean, think of China's version of Jennifer Lawrence, Angelina Jolie, Julia Roberts rolled into one. I mean, just mega famous, had been famous since she was very young and had tried to cross over into the U.S. several times, had had starred in a few Hollywood movies and very bit roles. Um, but in China was very famous and also, quite interestingly, a bit of a feminist role model. She was um, she was known for you know, saying things like, I don't need a husband, I'm rich myself. She was known for being, you know, sort of quite outspoken. And then around 2017, 2018, it was revealed that she had been uh, practicing what they refer to as yin-yang contracts, which is where she would star in a movie and get paid a certain amount and then report a much lower salary, salary to the government to pay taxes on. And when the government, when this was revealed, she disappeared. Um, I mean, this was this is not what happens whenever you're busted for tax problems in the U.S. She just completely disappeared. Very similar to the tennis star Peng Shuai that mm-hmm. who who had disappeared for several weeks at, earlier this year, late last year, and um, and so she disappeared. She was scheduled to be in Europe filming a movie with Jessica Chastain. She never showed up to set, and the government really used it as an opportunity to scrutinize the entire entertainment industry and essentially look at the books of every entertainment company and every major movie star and claw back a lot of the taxes they hadn't paid. But also, I think, I mean, and look, I think, you know, some people justifiably say, well, she wasn't paying her taxes, right? Like there's, there is a, there is, there isn't sort of a faultless party here, but it was part of a broader campaign by Xi Jinping to bring his film industry underfoot and remind them who was in charge. And what you started to see was not only did a lot of these companies have to pay 
millions of dollars in back taxes, but a lot of them had to reaccrue a lot of political capital. And so a lot of these film studios would say, okay, not only are we paying back our taxes, but we're also going to start making a lot of movies about the Belt and Road Initiative, or we're going to start making a lot of movies about the party. And they, they essentially said, like, we will try through our actual content to bring ourselves back into good stead. And there were other things that had happened around the same time where it was just very obvious that the government thought the film, its film industry had gotten away from itself and that they needed mm-hmm. to make sure that as Mao knew that art made in China would also serve China. Yeah. I mean, Xi Jinping uh, seems to have a much more Maoist sense of of art uh, there. You, you talk in your book about bringing uh, bringing the film industry out from one part of the CCP to another part of the CCP in a in a in a way to, to better control messaging in the films. Right. Moving moving it um, from a sort of a state bureaucratic organization into the Ministry of Propaganda, which just puts it puts it a little bit closer to the nexus of power. And, and I think the, th- the important thing to remember, it's a process thing, but it's really vital to understanding how the Chinese film market works, which is that every script has to be approved before it can be made into a movie. So there are what we refer to as propaganda movies, which are really almost like they're getting better, but like for a long time, we're like medicinal films often released in conjunction with a party anniversary or the anniversary of some ar- Chinese army victory. Um, those are those are strict propaganda films that are made by the Ministry of Propaganda. But even if it's just like a, a like a light comedy or a domestic drama, those also have to be approved by the ministry. So it's not like there's really any filmmaker in China who's releasing movies in a major way who aren't sanctioned in some way by the government. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the the Belt and Road Initiative mm-hmm. because that's that's a that's a, that is a fascinating thing to talk about here uh, because it is in the closing chapters of your book you you uh, we we spend some time in Kenya yes uh, where uh, the Chinese cultural in, influence and the cultural footprint is much larger than in the United States or or elsewhere what what is going on there so what is what is the Belt and Road Initiative uh, since you mentioned it let's 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 tell the folks but also uh, what is what is the what is the actual Chinese soft power footprint look like in in the developing world right now so the Belt and Road Initiative is this collection of trade and infrastructure deals that China is cutting with countries around the world and i mean everyone from Southeast Asia to Africa to Latin America to Canada to Western Europe. And it's been known as it's been referred to as like the Baskin Robbins of trade partnerships because there's a flavor for everyone. And it might mean that like China is helping finance a bridge in Mozambique or a train station in inner Kenya. And essentially it is allowing them or, or, or allowing them to try and redraw global trade maps to the belt and the road refer to sort of like a, a like a land route and then like a like a maritime route and essentially try and once it's complete redraw global trade maps that recenter China as a as a trade hub and this the belt and road initiative has gotten quite a bit of attention especially because a lot of the companies that China is moving into are developing or flat out impoverished and the money and the financing that China is providing is really 
being offered as a bit of a of a salvation. And we're we're seeing there's a dark side to that too, where it's oftentimes uh, there are often countries that cannot repay those debts and are going farther and farther into debt to service them. So there's been a lot of attention on that. I think that like sort of like that hard power element to it. Yeah. I was very interested in the soft power element because it turns out that sort of atop all of these Belt and Road Initiative deals are cultural agreements and partnerships that are also coming with them. I'll give you an example. When I was in China, I was in Shanghai in the summer of 2019, and I was staying in a hotel that got, um, I think it was China Daily like or People's Daily, one of the state media English language newspapers. And I was reading it at breakfast, and there was a story about Xi Jinping sending Vladimir Putin ice cream for his birthday. And later that night, I went to this party that was being thrown by a film studio, and they were announcing the, I think it was the first ever co-production between Russia and China. Every time there was kind of a deepening of ties, whether it was politically or through the Belt and Road, there was a film component sort of bolstering it and trying to support it. And when I went to Kenya, I was really struck by what I saw because Kenya has been the recipient of a significant number of Belt and Road loans, projects. There's a real significant Chinese presence there. I mean, at one point I was driving in, I wasn't driving, but I was I was riding in Nairobi on Beijing Road. And, and, and you see Chinese restaurants, you see hotels that print their receipts in Chinese. I mean, the, the Chinese presence there is everywhere. And I was going out into inner Kenya. So I was going into villages deep outside Nairobi and you would walk in to apartments and it was very common to see Chinese soap operas on screen, Chinese Kung Fu on screen. And the reason why was because there is an initiative called the 10,000 Villages Project that China is using to deliver low-cost Chinese satellite dishes to 10,000 African villages. And a lot of these African villages are already familiar with China because of the Belt and Road. I mean, in some of the villages I went to in Kenya, I I was the first non-Chinese light-skinned person they had ever seen in their their town. Um, They were very familiar with the Chinese workers who would come. And these satellite dishes were going to try and introduce them to the Chinese culture. And so it wasn't only Chinese channels, but they were heavily subsidized dishes. So they were cheaper than everything else. And they had, you know, documentaries about the the, the old, the original Silk Road. We watched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon one night. We watched a lot of Kung Fu. We watched a, a Chinese version of that game show Wipeout with, that was completely transfixing. And frankly, it really does work in any language. You know, and there was, there was... <laughs> There was a sense of of superpower replacement happening, and and I don't think that it necessarily was, at least according to the people I spoke to, there was not a sense that they were diminishing America in their in their esteem, but they were allowing a kind of coexistence, and in mm-hmm. some cases, when I would speak to Kenyan government officials, they were blatant in saying. You know, and this is also during the waning days of the Trump administration, they would say, you know, democracy isn't looking so hot right now. And if I am someone who's charged with bringing Kenya into the developed world, I might look to someone who's going to write me a check 
rather than lecture me about free expression and human rights. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, as a believer in soft power myself, super depressing, super depressing thing to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's something it's something that I I, I really went into this book. I, I, I really believe in its power as well. And this book was just such an eye opener in how powerful it is, especially with regards to Hollywood, because I think a lot of the movies, as you know, reading the book, a lot of the movies I, I write about are not movies that get a lot of attention in the mainstream press. I mean, um, but they are seen by millions of people. You know, it's sure. it, there's it's it's rare to find a close read of a Transformers movie, but it, you have to remember that that these movies are still grossing hundreds of millions, if not a, more than a billion dollars worldwide, and and they really are incredibly powerful products because they're seen by so many people. Yeah, the uh, the the Transformers uh, scene that you mentioned. There's, I think it was it's the fourth one, right? The fourth Transformers movie. It's yeah, it's uh, uh, Age of Extinction. Age of Extinction. Uh, there's there's a whole sequence set in Hong Kong, where the savior of the city is not uh, Mark Wahlberg or uh, Optimus Prime. I mean, eventually they do show up, but the first people they call are are the the army the P, you know the the i guess the PLA the Beijing defense official comes and says he will defend Hong Kong at all costs and it was a scene that was changed at the request of chinese officials and yeah. um and it was it was just like the classic case of i, I watched that movie cuz I, I remembered that it was a big deal for the for the china hollywood relationship for a number of reasons and i watched that movie and i thought that's a weird cut that is a it's very odd that in this moment we cut to a Beijing defense official saying he will defend yeah. Hong Kong. And, and lo and behold, there was a very specific reason why. Yeah, it jumped out of me at the time as well. Uh, and uh, good to get good to get confirmation on all of these uh, niggling concerns in the back of my head that, you know. Yeah, you. Yeah, Sonny, you you're like me, like you have for better or worse, you have the X-ray goggles that um, <laughs> that allow you to see every concession or nod to China in any movie. Yeah, uh, I, there, there's a funny there's there's a funny ish story. I don't want to call it a funny story, but there's a funny ish story uh, about uh, a, a a initiative uh, that Disney undertook in China because they couldn't they couldn't get their they couldn't get the Disney Channel on the air. But they wanted to introduce folks uh, to especially young people to the Disney characters and everything called Disney English. Could you could you explain Disney English to us and what exactly that meant for the company? Sure. The first thing to understand is that Disney has a playbook when they are entering into a new market because, you know, in America, we are just like so saturated with Disney mythology. But imagine having to introduce all of those characters and brands to a new entirely new market. They have a system in place that usually starts with the Disney Channel because they find like if, if kids are watching these these shows at home, they can, you know, grow to love the characters. And then eventually, if enough of them do love the characters, Disney can justify building a theme park where they can go and see them. Well, communist parties tend to be a little fickle about what they allow on their airwaves. And they essentially told Disney, you're never going to get a Disney Channel onto Chinese TV. We want the other stuff. We want the toys. We want the movies. We want the theme park, but we're never going to we're not going to get you a channel. And so Disney had to figure out a way to introduce young children to these characters. And it had had success with English language programs in other countries, I think primarily Japan. And they knew it was a good there was an identifiable market there because in the early 2000s, 
there was this robust Chinese middle class, and there were a lot of Chinese parents who wanted their children, often having only one, to be as educated, as worldly, as cosmopolitan as possible, and learning English was a big part of that. And so these English language schools started popping up in Chinese cities, and Disney started one called Disney English, which was an English language school where they have tutors and teachers teaching, you know, one, two, three, four, five, A, B, C, D, E, F. And the only hitch was it was all done using Disney characters. So you might say like Simba is four years old or how are you goofy? And it was a way for them to indoctrinate these children in Disney mythology while also, you know, opening a pretty good, I mean, this was not going to like move the needle too much on a balance sheet like Disney's, but it was a good, it was a good business to have. And it also, because these schools were very well run, it introduced Disney as a brand of kind of safety and reliability to parents. But I have to say, I I spoke to uh, teachers who worked there and um, it, it became a rather cynical operation. I mean, there, there were classrooms. I mean, Disney, as you know, is just like, absolute sticklers about what they call brand integrity. And um, this is why, just as a side note, this is why whenever you see a collection of the Disney princesses on a lunchbox or a book bag, they all, they're, if you look closely, their eyes are all looking in different directions because according to Disney rules, the princesses are not allowed to know one another. And so when they put them on the same product, they have them looking in different directions so that they plausibly could be separate. I'm not kidding. Just you, once you see that, you will you'll see it everywhere. Anyway, so they had these classrooms where they would have like a Lion King classroom or a Dumbo classroom and every stuffed animal, every poster in that room was related to that property. But, but I talked to one teacher who once got in trouble for taking the wrong stuffed animal into the wrong class. I mean, that is the degree to which they were watching to make sure that this was the most, you know, above board brand perfect presentation of the Disney way possible. And um, and I was when I was in uh, this actually the same trip to Shanghai, I I decided to walk by a school. I went over and, and, and found one. They were actually quite a few in Shanghai. And um, I think Toy Story 4 was coming out the weekend I was there. And all of the teachers were wearing Toy Story 4 T-shirts. I mean, it really was. Uh, it was an English language school, but it was also a branding arm. That's fascinating. That is that is fascinating stuff. Possibly a slightly awkward question, uh, and feel free to you know not answer if if it'll if it'll get you in Dutch. But do you are you worried about not being able to go back to China to do more reporting after writing this book? I know I know folks who cover China and who have essentially been banned from the country for for what they've written. Is that is that a, a concern on your end? You know, I, I tried not to let it be a concern when I was writing the book because I didn't I didn't want to, you know, feel like I was watching myself or um, pulling any punches where I where I shouldn't and, and things like that. Um, it's I mean, I have to say it's the, the, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think I think it's something I think about um, and Certainly, um, going over to China to do reporting as a journalist before this book was never an easy process. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times I, you know, was in near tears at the at the visa office trying to figure out if I was going to get 
a stamp in time for my flight that day. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's it's never been an easy thing when you identify yourself as a reporter to to get over there, and 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 so I'll, I'll rephrase. I'll, I'll sort of rephrase the question, I guess, in a classic like politician's way, which is like I've had people ask me, well, is China going to be mad at this book? Which is a, kind of an odd question, a country being mad at a book. But um, and, and I, I've said, you know, I think certainly it explores history and situations that it does not want to see aired in public. But when I was in China and talking to people about this, there was also a real sense of pride and swagger over what the country has pulled off in just 10 or 15 years. It has the world's largest box office in, you know, thanks in large part due to COVID shutting down the American box office. Uh, But it has the world's largest box office. It has movies that are routinely grossing 600, 700, 800 million dollars. And it hasn't yet successfully had that global hit, but it's trying to build its own franchises and essentially make movies that meet its moment in history. And so I think, I mean, I think that the book in some corners of China might engender some back padding at, at just how quickly they have been able to mount a serious competitor to the U.S. Yeah. I always like to close uh, these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything you want people to know about China or the global box office or or whatever. Uh, what 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 did I fail to ask that you think folks should know? Well, about? you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I actually and I'm going to I'm going to, I think, cite you at this moment. But it's funny that we're we're talking about this now, because, as you know, like. Hollywood has no freaking clue what's happening in China right now. I mean, I finished the book uh, last year and there was a sense that things were getting a little weird. You know, the Chinese uh, market was growing, was was more and more tickets were going toward Chinese movies. But we're at a point today where hardly any major Hollywood movies are even getting into China and no one really knows why. And no, there's really no recourse for it. And so um, I think a lot of studios are really caught in the middle because I don't think they don't want to write off China as a as a market. And I don't think they're going to revamp their business plans and not account for China going forward. But no one really has a sense of when things are going to get back to normal and movies like Spider-Man can get back in there. I mean, studios have lost billions of dollars that they were expecting in grosses just in the past year alone. Um, So it's a really, it's a real, I feel like we're at a bit of an inflection point. And, and like I said, I think a lot of executives will hope, like, I think if they were given truth serum, they'd want, they'd say like, can we just like, can we move on? Can we just try, try something else? I mean, it's just too much work, but um, the money is still too promising to, to totally give up. Yeah. Well, I, let me ask about that because I, I, one thing I've always, one thing I've always found a little, a little strange about the, uh, the, the Hollywood efforts in China is that they get such a small proportion of the money anyway. Twenty five percent. So it's, it's, they get twenty five percent unless it's a co production, and they get forty three percent. But they, but they, you know, they get, they, they get a very small amount of the Chinese box office as it is, and the Chinese box office tends to be. Tends to be generally, unless it's a you know a Transformers or a Warcraft that sort of thing, 
lower, much lower in China than in the United States. So even if even if, you know, a movie goes over there and grosses one hundred million dollars, they're only getting about twenty five million of that. At what point does it just make sense to say, you know what, uh, if 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 you guys take the movie, great, it's found money for us. Um, and if not, we're just going to have to live with that as well and focus on the rest of the world. I think you just I mean, the the issue is, though, that these movies are starting to cost so much money that every bit of profit counts. And it is still only 25%. I mean, other international markets are closer to 40% usually. And in the US, for those big movies, it's 60, 65% of ticket sales. Yeah. Um, and and God, I mean, if you really if you really want to get some distribution executives riled up, ask them why they if they think it's still fair that China only gives 25% despite being the biggest in the world. And um but yeah, it's it's a good point. I think one consideration I would make there is that it is very cheap to release movies in China. Um, there's hardly any um, marketing and advertising costs, so a lot of it is just sort of net profit. Um, and for better or worse, they've baked that expectation of that twenty five million dollars into the into the bottom line. And there's been some good reporting about just how. Oftentimes, when the budget is accounted for, when profit participation is accounted for, when the marketing and advertising costs are accounted for, some of these grosses end up being far less in profit than we would ever expect. And so I think I think if you if you've got a movie like uh, the hundred million dollar gross is a trickier situation. But let's say you've got a movie like Spider-Man that you might expect could make 400, 500 million in China. That's a hundred, hundred and twenty-five million coming back to you. I mean, that is that is really going to make yeah. a key difference. Yeah, that's not that's not nothing. I, again, it's a trick. I don't, I don't, I do not envy Hollywood studio executives right now. It is a, it's a tough world. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, it's yeah. And and, and then they're also being told to make everything for streaming. I mean, they really, they they really can't win. Yeah. Yeah, well, streaming—that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Yeah, uh, and an interesting, an interesting bulwark against Chinese influences in weird, interesting ways. But uh, another, another show, maybe we, we can talk about that for sure. Uh, Eric, Eric, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, the book again is Red Carpet. Uh, hold on, let me read the subtitle: Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Uh, you can get it at Amazon or booksellers everywhere. Um, check it out if you, uh, if you're a listener of this show, you know I'm fascinated in this and I will tell you that it's the most uh, it's the most comprehensive uh, version of this story that I've seen by far I mean other 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 books have had you know kind of bits and pieces of it but this is the this is really a very solid you know last 70 years of the relationship look so I appreciate uh, that pick it up Pick it up, uh, go get it delivered to your house, whatever, however you buy books now. Again, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.